Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 13 through 18. Hear now God's Word. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one between the ones who serve God and, and one who does not serve him. Thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I wasn't quite ready to return to the book of Acts this week uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, next week, Rick Skaronsky will be in the pulpit, and then we will have our annual Senior Sunday, the following Lord's Day, and then the week after that is Pentecost. Uh, and so, and then I think a couple of weeks after that, uh, uh, Elder Bradley will be in the pulpit. And so I'm going to put off getting back to the book of Acts um, for a few more weeks. So this morning, I want to see how the scriptures address an age-old question, which is, why do the wicked prosper and the godly suffer? The people in Malachi's day had grown indifferent, really, to the love of God. The theme of Malachi is, God says, I have loved you. But the calloused response of the people was, how have you loved us? The prophet seeks to show them that the problem was not on God's part. Uh, It never is. The problem was on their selfish, sinful, temporal perspective. They were looking at this all wrong. They needed to see things from God's eternal perspective and serve him by faith. How we look at anything makes all the difference. As I mentioned, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament And the last words of the Old Testament uh, say this, Lest I come and, and strike the earth with a curse. So that's how the Old Testament closes. This isn't exactly the happy ending that we like to hear uh, at the end of a story. Of course, this isn't really the end of the story at all. In this short prophetic message, God brings charges, if you will, against his own people. And, uh, and many of those people then have counter charges against God. This point is vividly made by the specific objections, uh, by, uh, objections against God and, uh, and the people, uh, response, respond to it, uh, according to what we've just read here in Malachi 3. These verses contain the last of those of seven objections that are marked by the words, how or what have we done? When God said, I have loved you in Malachi 1-2, the people replied, 
How have you loved us? When God said, It's you, O priest, who show contempt for my name, the priest answered, How have we shown contempt for your name? When God explained, You place defiled food on my altar, they defended themselves by retorting, How have we defiled you? And when God told the nation, You have wearied the Lord with your words, the people responded, How have we wearied you? We don't know what you're talking about. Who, us? And in chapter 3, God declared, return to me, and you robbed me. And they said, how are we to return, and how have we robbed you? So these statements and retorts reveal six very distinct transgressions that have been described as uh, profanity, sacrilege, greed, weariness weariness in service, honoring of vice, and robbery. This seventh one is a summary of all of these. The people were saying that God didn't love them, that he was not worthy of their sacrifices, that he was unjust, that he didn't deserve a full tithe, and was unreasonable to call for repentance. The seventh and last complaint summarizes their thoughts as, and this is Malachi 3, 14 through 15, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. So the people are blinded to the fact that among those who had been challenging God... They were really chief among them. They saw what other people were doing, but they were not seeing what they were doing. Now, there's another way in which the situation had not changed, and this is the first encouraging note in which, in what is an otherwise rather distressing picture, there was a remnant. There were some who actually feared the Lord, and God noted them, and God said he was going to remember them. The text says in reference to them in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who meditate on his name. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you ever felt like this? You look around and wonder why the wicked seem to be prospering. Maybe this is why most people prefer to be unbelievers. The unbeliever doesn't have to obey the rules that God has laid down. He doesn't have the same restraints that believers do. It seems sometimes like they're getting just getting away with it. That was what the complaint was. And here you are, serving God, and yet you're struggling to get through life. And then there's that 10% surcharge we call tithing that seems to put you at a disadvantage. Just think of what you could do with that extra 10%. Not to mention all the other ways obedience to God slows you down. Sometimes we're left to wonder if being a Christian is really worth it. The wicked cheat God and they seem to get away with it. We work hard to follow the rules and yet we don't see immediate rewards. 
And so this is, this is how some of the people in Malachi's day felt, and I think it's how some of the people in our own day feel. Some of the people charged God with unfairness, but the truly righteous encouraged one another in the midst of whatever trials they were in. God confirms his promises to the righteous here. We'll get to this. Uh, and then a clear distinction is made between the righteous and the wicked, and, that, and they will be established accordingly. So I want us to back up and look at each of these. In verses 13 through 15, God is charged by the people, or some of the people, with unfairness. These are really arrogant words. In this case, the people are, use a perceived uh, injustice as an excuse for their own apathy and their own sin, justifying their own behavior as they question God's sense of discernment between right and wrong. Basically, God apparently doesn't, can't see the difference. This reminded me of Job's wife's response to Job's adversity. In Job 2, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Or we might say, Do you still hold fast to your faith? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now these people in Malachi were by and large people who were simply going through the motions of serving God. They confused their outward performance with the spiritual motives that God requires of us. That is, a humble and a contrite heart. They look for immediate, tangible blessings rather than eternal blessings. And this is the same old health and wealth crowd. They believe God is someone who can be manipulated to their own advantage. I had someone tell me recently, uh, actually lamenting that they had done this, and that was very good, that they did things for God, and then they thought God owed them. It's a way of, I'll do you a favor, and now, now when I need you, you need to bail me out, because look what I've done for you. And we don't usually articulate it that way, but I do think these kinds of thoughts and feelings uh, I remember one, I should, I'm going to tell on myself here, uh, on one occasion, well, that didn't sound right. On one occasion I was speeding. That doesn't mean there weren't other occasions that I was speeding. <laughs> and I was on the way to help someone who was in distress. I was going as a pastor to help them. And I got pulled over. And I remember thinking, Lord, I'm on the way to do something I'm supposed to do, and here I am getting, and I got a pretty big ticket there. Um, <laughs> I didn't get off. Um, and so uh, I think that's an example of that. Like, well, I'm doing something for you. You can't get me out of this. You can't fix the ticket. And uh, so that, that would be kind of an example, at least, on, uh, of that kind of thing. So um, in Malachi, 
These people had the audacity to complain that God was not being good enough to them. Uh, The original language indicates that they were not so much saying this to God, they were murmuring among themselves. They were moaning and complaining, griping about this among themselves uh, against the alleged injustice of God. In other words, this was an attitude that just kind of oozed out of them. And they thought they deserved better than what they were getting. But God was eavesdropping on their conversation. He eavesdrops on all of our conversations, including the ones that we have with ourselves. God was insulted by what he heard. The text describes it as harsh. It was the epitome of arrogance for slothful people to complain about not receiving what they deserved. So basically they said it was vanity. It was useless to serve God. What's in it for us? Their service to God was predicated upon what they thought they would get in return, what they would be paid. And when he didn't pay what they thought they deserved, they complained. Have you ever fallen fallen into this kind of arrogant thinking and murmuring or attitude? Poor me. Do you think God is not blessing you quite enough? So are you ready actually to stand up and say, just, you know, if you ever have that thought, just say, stand up and say, God, give me what I deserve. That'll usually put things back in perspective. So the wicked are getting away with their wickedness. You always make me and they always get to. It's really childish whining. These people had no grounds for complaining at all since they themselves were not doing what God required. You know, David knew about this complaint in Psalm 73, starting in verse 3. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks throughout the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. That's the Word of God telling us, revealing to us the kind of heart that we can all have at one time or another. But then in verse 16, we read that the righteous actually encourage one another. So no matter how many defect from the Lord, he always maintains a few that don't bow the knee to Baal. There are in the midst, uh, in the midst the very, of the very same cultural conditions, if you will, uh, that others were complaining about There were the faithful, the believing, and the thankful people of God. 
They are described as those who fear the Lord, people who live their lives with an awareness of God's presence, an awareness of their obligations to Him, and an awareness of His promises. Like the unfaithful who murmured among themselves, the righteous talked among themselves. The text doesn't describe the exact content of their conversation, but it is clear that it is meant to contrast with the harsh words that were spoken against Yahweh. No doubt they encouraged one another. They reminded one another of God's faithfulness, of God's promises. I love Pastor Volkov every time I talk with him, every time we discuss something, no matter how difficult it is, whether we're on a Zoom call or in person or texting, it always ends with God is always good. God is always good. Isn't that encouraging to be reminded by one another, to talk among one another, to say no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in my life, I have to remember there are not many things I know for sure. But one thing I know for sure, God is always good. That is helpful. Perhaps like David, they reminded one another, like in Psalm 73, 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Or as Hebrews 10 exhorts us this way, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the own assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this isn't a place where we just run in and run out. I got my dose of religion. I got to get out of here. I don't need, have time for other people. That, that's too demanding on me. I, I have other things that are more important than this. You see... It's, it's it's an understanding that I'm part of something bigger than me. We were talking about this in Sunday school, that one of the things about worship and being in the church is where we learn that I'm not the center of the universe. That God has put me here to serve and to labor and to love and to sacrifice, to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. And that means living among his people and denying myself. And what we should remember here is, again, that the Lord hears. God eavesdrops on the righteous as well. He knows our secret thoughts. He knows our conversations. Matthew six thirty four. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand, left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. So God knows your attitude. He knows your conversation. He knows your conduct, and he knows it right now as we sit here this morning. Are you prepared to receive payment for those? Be patient. The Lord is faithful to repay. Second Peter 3, 8-11. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come 
as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We've been told what's coming. We've been told how he operates. We've been told that he's patient and he's long-suffering. He doesn't operate on our timetable, but he does operate faithfully. The Lord, in verse 16 of Malachi chapter 3, the Lord will remember. He has written a book of remembrance. The kings of Persia were accustomed to entering in a book, into a book, the names of those who had rendered service to the king in order that they might be duly rewarded. And God keeps record of the faithful and the unfaithful. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from those uh, from from uh, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up uh, the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this should be an encouragement to the righteous, but it should be a fearful thing for the unrighteous. And then in verse 17, the Lord confirms his promise. They, the righteous, they will be mine. A a confirmation of the covenant promise. He calls them my jewels and my treasures. God had promised in his covenant that he would be their God and that they would be his people Leviticus 26.12, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There were many present in Malachi's day who had been circumcised and who had entered into covenant with God, but only the faithful, those whom God effectually called to himself, would be possessed by God as his own people. Those who were unfaithful to the covenant would be cut off, and God would be their judge. And he said he would do this on the day that he prepared. I like to call it adjustment day. There is certainly coming a day when the accounts are going to be adjusted adjusted. And balanced. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 through 11, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Judgment Day is a blessing to the righteous. 
There are times when knowledge and assurance of heaven sustains us. There are times when knowledge and assurance of hell sustains us. We are the possession that God is preparing for the future. He is sanctifying us. He is making us holy. He is setting us apart. And without, because without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. He is testing. He is trying. He is purifying us in anticipation of that great day of adjustment. Again, we've gotten to look at the end of the story. God will judge the wicked and he will spare the righteous always. The wicked will fail the exam. Psalm 73, 16-20, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. He's talking about the wicked. Surely you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Psalm 1, 4 through 6. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That's what's really going on. And we can see in our world of media all kinds of flashiness, all kinds of glamour, all kinds of wealth, all kinds of power, beauty. And then occasionally, actually quite often, we read about the crash, the burn, the destruction, the broken marriages, the suicides. It all falls apart. It it can't be sustained. It's built on nothing. We are not just talking about those who are notoriously wicked, though, but all who fail to serve him faithfully. We're talking about people many of us might call good people. God will spare his faithful sons, though, that serve him. First Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Psalm 103, starting in verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. For as a man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, 
and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So in the end, the Bible tells us there's going to be a great reckoning between the righteous and the wicked, a day of discrimination. You may not always be able to distinguish the results of wickedness and righteousness on any given day in the present, but the show is not over. The story is not over, and so you better stick around for the surprise ending and just wait until you read the final credits. God is going to be very politically incorrect. He is going to discriminate between the righteous and the wicked. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We are prone to see about as far as our noses. I often talk about little the difference in maturity You know, uh, a one-year-old only knows the moment. They can go from crying to giggling and back to crying again in minutes. A six-year-old can't see from Monday to Friday. A ten-year-old, maybe they can see from Monday to Friday. A 15-year-old, now I'm getting personal, aren't I? Um, Might see a month ahead, maybe two months. Oh, but you're 20 now. You can see a long way, right? You can see like a year or two or five maybe. The longer you live, the further you can see. The more you have behind you, the further you can see. That's part of maturity. That's part of wisdom. That's part of being able to see things that you didn't see before. Well, I want to urge you to to let God tell you who is eternal himself what eternity looks like. And to bank on it. We are, again, prone to only see as far as our noses. We can't even imagine things different than we know them now. But we are to live in the light of eternity. Those who fear God, listen to him and say, he knows what he's talking about. We all know there's a future. We all know that we, uh, we all know that what we do today has an effect on tomorrow. We all know that we're accountable to God. We all know that we'll soon stand before Him and give an account. And at that point, God will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the fruitful trees from the unfruitful trees, the clean from the unclean, the faithful from the unfaithful. And so I want to ask you, where do you find yourself in this passage? Are you living your life in light of these certainties? Are you going to try to cheat your way through God's school? There won't be any cheat sheets for the final exam. In other words, the unrighteous don't get away with it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes goes through all kinds of things where Solomon is exploring the world. And for the sake of argument, he says, let's look at the world as though there's no eternity and there's no God. Let's see what this is all about. And what's his conclusion over and over and over after each experiment? 
Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity, it's empty. But then he comes to the conclusion at the end of the book. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And there's, here's how he ends the book, and I think it's appropriate to end this in light of our passage today. He says, here are the conclusion of the whole matter. No matter what you see in the moment, no matter what it seems like these people over here are prospering, uh, it seems like things aren't as, as, as good for you as it is for them. It only seems that way. The conclusion of the matter is this, the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Today I'm going to pray from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should have hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. The Bible is full of the stories about God's rescue, redemption, and restoration. His people, corporately and individually, uh, uh, all of those things are applied, and it's full of these stories because they demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promises. He is, in fact, working all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. He did that for Noah. He did that for Joseph and Abraham and Moses and David and many others. And he's also done it for you and for me and for millions of others. He's still doing it. God is always good, and even when we can't see all that he is doing We are always confident that he is at work and will bring about our good as he advances his eternal kingdom. This table is a token of that very goodness, wherein he turned the apparent defeat of the cross into the ultimate victory over our main enemy, which is death. At this table, we remember his faithfulness and goodness And then we walk out of this sanctuary and into the world knowing that he loves us and that we are part of his plan to bless the world. And nothing can thwart that plan. We can rest in that fact. So as you come today, I'd urge you to remember those things, to remember his love for you, his power over everything, and the fact that he is in, you are in his hand and no one. No one can snatch you out. Heavenly Father, we thank you also for the faithful saints who have both guarded and delivered this gospel to us, who by their lives and testimonies were faithful to their calling. We rejoice in your kind providence which brought the good news to our ears and for the Holy Spirit who opened our hearts to receive so great a salvation. Help us now to live with a view of our mission 
to raise our children accordingly with right thinking and with hearts that love the way of the Lord, that we might embrace your mission and transmit that mission to our children and our children's children so that we might be found standing with all the faithful as we proclaim the good news to all men everywhere. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.